I'm going to talk about cognitive enhancement more generally, um, make some remarks uh, assessing uh, objections against cognitive enhancement. I'll talk about cognitive enhancement. I think uh, pretty much everything I have to say will apply just as much to uh, moral enhancements too. Um, and I'll use those remarks to gesture towards a motivation to, towards what I call the parity principle, where the parity principle is <coughs> the principle that what matters when it comes to uh, assessment of the permissibility of enhancers is just function. Uh, in a slogan, means don't matter morally. It's what matters, it's what it does uh, to cognition, at what costs, where they, you know, these things can also be functionally specified outside of the brain, costs in terms of social costs and so forth. That's what matters. And having motivated it, I'm going to turn to what I originally understood to be an objection to the parity principle, and in fact is cast as an objection to the parity principle by uh, two German uh, lawyers, actually, uh, academically, although very philosophical ones, uh, Christoph Publitz and Reinhard Merkel. I think their objection is better understood as uh, suggesting that the parity principle is not false, but uh, doesn't actually give us any guidance. That, in fact, what the opponents of cognitive enhancement thought all along, that they are not necessarily impermissible, but they are more problematic than other means of intervening in the mind. Turns out to be true, and the parity principle doesn't show that it's not true. And I'm going to uh, put forward some reasons why Publitz and Merkel are wrong. And then finally, uh, I'm going to just draw some morals about the status of new ethics from that. Now, what kind of project it is, or what its scope is. All right, so cognitive enhancers. Um, I'm not going to, there's a lot of talk about the enhancement treatment distinction. Nothing I say uh, depends on that distinction in any way. Uh, I am skeptical about that distinction, at least as a distinction that does not any moral work. Uh, I think it's covertly circular when it's appealed to, to do moral work. I think people um, actually, when they wanted to do moral work, they actually draw it in a way that's self-normatively loaded. So really what they mean by enhancements are ways of intervening into the mind that are morally problematic, and by treatments they mean those are okay, and then they you know, appeal to the distinction to get just those conclusions, so it's covertly circular. Now, uh, that isn't to say we can't draw such a distinction. Uh, maybe we can on other grounds, but I doubt it's going to do any moral work for us. In any case, what I have to say should be neutral on that. If uh, I, as far as I can see, um, if you do want to defend a treatment enhancement distinction, that shouldn't, nothing I say will require you to take issue with my claims, I think. 
So I'm interested in what we might pick out as just kind of ostensively as these class of cognitive enhancements, these new technologies for improving cognition in some way. Cognition's the domain of information <coughs> processing. Um, whether there is a way of picking out cognitive enhancements in a more principled way, I'm not sure. So we'll see that uh, Bublitz and Merkel give a, a criterion, uh, which is that uh, the new enhancers are not psychologically mediated. That is to say, they're not processed by mechanisms which have the function brain mechanisms that have the function of processing information like that, where like that is very broadly construed. Maybe that works, I don't know. Uh, I'm somewhat skeptical, but again, since I'm arguing for a parity principle, it's not a worry for me if you can't draw the distinction. So I'm just going to pick out this class of enhancers by pointing. I mean this stuff that's been developed recently over the last 40 years, say, and putatively at least, or for which there is some evidence, not necessarily very strong evidence, but some evidence that uh, they improve cognition. I guess, because <coughs> if, you, if you, um, you, you can say it's pretty strong evidence although there's pretty weak evidence that it improves uh, cognition when people are functioning pretty well already. So I have in mind psychopharmaceuticals like uh, antidepressants, like selective uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, or modafinil to improve concentration, or um, methylphenidate, that's Ritalin, again, used to enhance attention. Uh, or zapping the brain with electricity, which can be done you know, DC currents, uh, externally applied, transcranial direct current stimulation, or transmag transmagnetic uh, stimulation, or internal current, like um, direct brain stimulation, <coughs> and so forth. All of these have been suggested to be enhancers of aspects of <coughs> cognition, very broadly construed, I'm mean, including affect within the domain of cognition. Now, these <coughs> improvements for cognition to cognition in some ways seem relevantly similar to much older and much more familiar ways of enhancing cognition. So for example, the effects of antidepressants on mood uh, don't seem to be stronger, they're arguably weaker than um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And cognitive behavioral therapy is, is um, no doubt refined and more powerful due to its refinement, but it has its origins, or at least you can trace a genealogy. Going back literally thousands of years, it has a family resemblance to stoic techniques of uh, managing uh, mood, and although I don't, I don't know the tradition, no doubt to 
more than one Eastern tradition of, of mood management through meditation, for example. Um, so you may just think that cognitive enhancers are new ways of affecting cognition which are relevantly similar to old ways. And then you can start assessing whether the new uh, is better than the old or vice versa on the basis uh, of things like cost, opportunity costs, side effects, um, safety, and so on. And in fact, that's what I think we should be doing. But, as we all know, lots of people find the new enhancers more problematic. And indeed, I think that's an understandable intuition. Uh, I think we all get that intuition upon, at least speaking for myself, I think I had such an intuition upon first encountering these things. And I think I can still at least get a glimmer of that intuition uh, now. So, you know, just... Just yesterday, I learned that a friend of mine is uh, taking SSRIs. And that worried me. And one reason why it worried me is I didn't know he was so depressed. Um, but I suspect I wouldn't be as worried if he told me he was having uh, psychotherapy for his depression. Um, the question is, is that worry rationally grounded? Now, there are various reasons why you might think it's rationally grounded. Um, I'm going to pick out four. I think they're the four main ones. Safety, authenticity, cheating, and social justice. Um, safety is in a way the most banal and the least philosophically interesting. It's, it's in, in, you know, philosophers do have things to say about, for example, cost-benefit analysis. Um, but moral philosophers tend the, not to have a lot to say. Uh, mainstream moral philosophers tend not to have a lot to say that's useful here. It's largely an empirical question, and I'm just going to basically set it aside, except to say um, <coughs> uh, there are still reasons to to um, take safety concerns seriously. It just, it kind of, you know, it follows from the fact we're talking about a novel means of changing minds <coughs> that uh, we don't have great longitudinal data on any other stuff. Still, the longitudinal data is accumulating um, and it looks pretty safe so far. And the there are theoretical reasons to think that for at least some enhances like TCDS, it's unlikely that there are going to be safety issues. And with TCDS, for example, we know uh, we've now got, if not a good, great longitudinal data, we've now got a pretty big sample of people who are using it themselves, building it at home, uh, and we know reports of side effects, we know that they exist, uh, we know that they um, are transitory and mild visual disturbances and headaches. We also know that they, they come from, they appear to come from um, mislocation of the electrodes due to the fact that these people are not trained. 
suggesting that you know, in trained hands there are they're very safe, so long as the uh, current is kept below a certain threshold. So the evidence suggests that safety is not a huge issue, but it is an issue uh, that remains relevant. Although, you know, uh, everything has side effects, including more traditional means of changing uh, minds, and indeed suicidal ideation following psychotherapy, that is successful uh, psychotherapy, has been reported. So, you know, one of the, the major symptoms of depression is a lack of motivation. Success at treating uh, depression may lead to increased motivation without increased in mood and actually raises suicide risk. That's been reported as a result of uh, psychotherapy as well as, for example, antidepressants. So, um, even given that there are safety <coughs> concerns, the, uh, it's not obvious that that gives us a reason to prefer the older methods to the new. Um, cheating, I'll just very uh, briefly consider. Um, so it's easy to motivate this worry. Uh, and indeed, I think in some contexts, it's an obvious worry. I mean, obvious, and it's obvious that it has uh, force. So just as there's a really obvious sense in which Lance Armstrong was cheating to use um, EPO, was it EPO, the Tour de France? Um, so there's, there's an obvious sense in which I might be cheating to use, say, methylphenidate in an exam. Uh, that obvious sense is against the rules, and you know, maybe the other participants may be uh, contrary to fact in the case of the Tour de France, but maybe the other participants have a reasonable expectation that I won't use such enhancers. And then you know, we can give a lot of force for the cheating concern. It doesn't do a lot of work, though, because, you know, as philosophers, we're not really interested whether people are violating the rules. We're much more interested in what the rules should be. And the cheating concern, you know, the fact that it is cheating to violate the rules doesn't tell us, doesn't go any way to telling us what the rules should be. And it's very hard to make sense of the idea that it would be cheating to change the rules such that... Um, it's now permissible to use methylphenidate or EPO. Again, there may, be con there may be reasons not to do that. Maybe there are safety reasons. Uh, maybe there are social justice reasons, which I'm going to turn to in a minute. Uh, but they don't seem to be cheating-based reasons. Maybe there are. You know the old teacher's adage, if you cheat on the, your test, you're only cheating yourself. That can be true when uh, you are actually interfering with learning outcomes, but you know, for a lot of these enhancers, what they're doing is enhancing your capacity to learn. They're not magic bullets, they don't give you knowledge, you can't download mathematical knowledge after using TCDS, rather your mathematical, your capacity to uh, learn maths by applying yourself to the, um, the study <coughs> material is enhanced. Uh, the authenticity worry, I also have trouble making sense of. Uh, here the idea is, actually I think there are two authenticity worries. If you look in the, the classic article by 
Carl Elliott on uh, Prozac and authenticity. There seem to be two worries. The one that he highlights is if Prozac gives me uh, a sunnier disposition, that would somehow be inauthentic because it wouldn't be my disposition. There's a second worry, which I actually take slightly more seriously, but it's there in the article, but he doesn't bring it out as clearly, which is if I have a sunny disposition, but my actual you know, life circumstances are absolute crap, then my disposition is in some way failing to match those circumstances. And that's, you could describe that as inauthentic or inauthenticity. Although, um, you know, it's clearly a normative worry, however we label it. For the first one, Two things. First of all, you've got to have a certain conception of authenticity to keep the worry off the ground at all. Um, so, you know, interesting philosociological fact. Uh, for a long time, popular and philosophical no, uh, debates about authenticity were uh, dominated by Sartrean conceptions of authenticity. Uh, according to which authenticity was uh, self-creation. Very hard to object to uh, use of enhancers on these grounds. Uh, I guess somebody doesn't agree. Um, so, now that we've got this Hegelian conception of authenticity that's come to the fore, according to which authenticity consists in finding your measure within, and I suspect confabulation. Uh, I suspect the reason that people have switched conceptions of authenticity is to rationalize their prior worries. Second thing is, it's hard to make sense of this conception of uh, authenticity as a mismatch between who you really are and how you behave, how you're disposed to behave, without some essentialist criterion for who you really are. I can make sense of essentialism about origins. I find it very hard to make sense of essentialism of traits. Um, how, uh, I mean, it's easy to make sense of, for example, somebody living in authentic, authentically when they say a closeted gay person. You're really gay, but you present yourself, even to yourself, in a certain way. Then there's a mismatch between certain dispositions you actually have and how you present yourself in the world. But now we're talking about a mismatch between how you present yourself and the dispositions you actually have and your real self. And I just don't know how to make any sense of that whatsoever. Um, the second concern about this mismatch between your environment and your actual, and your, your, your uh, general attitudes towards the world, including your own environment, well it's easy to see how that, I mean that is a genuine worry and we could see how it might arise through enhancers. Uh, but most enhancers don't work like that in, in, in any way. I mean um, it seems to require conflating say SSRIs with um, hallucinogenics or perhaps something not quite that powerful but something which disconnects you from reality. Uh, and that's simply not what they do. In any case, even if it's true for some enhancers, 
in some circumstances. It's clearly not true uh, for many. PCDS, for example, in no way is going to bring it about that there's a mismatch between how things seem to you and how things really are. The final concern is social justice concern. The idea is roughly this. Um, so there's a cost to enhances. It <coughs> costs money to get methylphenidate or uh, PMS. That's a very expensive piece of machinery. Direct brain stimulation. You need a neurosurgeon. You need time in the operating theater. It's a lot of money. So here's the concern. These things will be available preferentially to those who have more resources, both within and across countries. That's going to lead to growing inequality, is the worry. Um, right now, <coughs> cognitive capacity is itself distributed in line with income, both because uh, there's a correlation between wealth and, and uh, IQ generally, with the causal arrow certainly running in both directions. Wealth causes better um, cognitive performance, better cognitive performance um, causes wealth. And we see that between countries and within countries. It's a very strong effect. It's true at every income level. It's true, for example, if you look at the difference between the, uh, the clinically malnourished <coughs> and the marginally nourished, you see a difference in cognitive performance. If you look at the difference between the marginally nourished and the adequately nourished, you see a difference in cognitive performance. Adequately nourished and genuinely well nourished, you see a difference in cognitive performance. Uh, and at quite fine-grained levels of changes in SES, at the group level, at least, there are differences in IQ. So the worry here is there's already these differences, and we are going to allow them to grow dramatically. So here are a couple of reasons why I'm not all that motivated by this concern. The first is just an empirical claim that for every enhancer study so far, the marginal benefit declines as a function of how well you were already doing. The worse you're doing before you use the enhancer, the better uh, or the, the, the more benefit you get from using it. And vice versa, the better you're doing prior to the, using the enhancer, the smaller the benefit. In fact, given that they all have some costs, so for example, modafinil seems to enhance concentration while decreasing creativity, it may well be that for those who are performing very well, uh, modafinil is, uh, and all things considered, disenhancer. Uh, it actually leaves you worse off overall than before. Given that fact, given that there's a rapidly diminishing marginal benefit of all the enhancers, it may well be that they can actually be used to narrow cognitive and therefore social inequalities rather than to increase them. Um, 
terms of cost, that's obviously a big issue for many. It's not a big issue for all. So for example, TCDS, um, relatively cheap uh, to make your own at home. Find the instructions on the internet. 500 uh, pounds will easily, easily get you a TCDS machine. That's a lot of money for somebody in the third world. But the, the per-use cost is very low because it can be then used indefinitely many times. You know, so it's just consumables you're actually, um, you're actually paying for. And we're literally talking about you know, pennies per application. In fact, perhaps well below a penny uh, given um, economies of scale. Um, so I'm not that concerned about the um, inequality worry. The second reason, uh, on that, those grounds, the second reason not to be all that concerned is it just seems to be looking in the wrong place. So Fukuyama, for example, in his book um, quite a long time ago, in which he says, you know, I'm really worried about enhancers. They're going to cause huge growths of inequalities. You think, hang on, you're a Republican. I mean, I don't think it's unfair to Republicans to say that they believe that equality may be a value, but it's one that can be traded off for other things, for various kinds of freedoms. Given that um, the actual uh, inequalities which exist in the world uh, have you know, they're exponentially bigger than anything we can expect from existing cognitive enhancers. Why aren't we worried about those if we're worried about inequality? Rather than be concerned with this possibly negative, but in any case small contribution to inequality that the new technologies might uh, create. This whiffs uh, to me of confabulation. It's uh, looking, it's worrying about a tiny, tiny influence on the actual variance of inequality, tiny potential variance. Right now, it's, it's certainly indistinguishable from zero. In fact, I think it's a very good case for saying it is zero. Um, whereas the actual differences in uh, in G, for example, in general intelligence, across and between countries that are explained by poverty, stress, which is correlated strongly with uh, poverty, malnutrition, schooling, um, access to libraries, access to books, access to parental time, they explain much, much more of a variant exponentially greater. So it seems that we should be worrying about those rather than worrying about the enhancers. All right, so those remarks motivate the parity principle. Um, what I've just <coughs> been saying is, look, uh, the kinds of features you seem to be worried about when it comes to cognitive enhancers are features which are instantiated by older means of affecting minds, more traditional means of affecting minds, to a much greater extent. You should be concerned about these uh, more than the new ones. 
And you should be concerned on the same basis. So that motivates something like the parity principle. What you could think of the parity principle as um, ethics for functionalists, or ethical principle for funct functionalists. If you're a functionalist about the mind, uh, as most philosophers, philosophers of mind are, then you think uh, mental states are individuated by and may in fact uh, have their ontology depend on their function. To be a mental state just is to be uh, the internal state, or arguably the partially internal state, um, which is, has certain causes, is involved in certain kinds of ways of transforming information, and then has certain characteristic outputs, uh, both to other states and into behavior. Um, if that's what mental states are, then the parity principle looks pretty irresistible. Um, to say that function is what matters when it comes to assessing cognitive enhancers. All right, so that all sets the stage for considering Bublitz and Merkel's objection, which they level, they, they characterize as an objection to the parity principle. I think it's better understood as the claim that, in fact, functionally, newfangled means of uh, changing minds or intervening in minds are not on a par with um, old-fangled means. They actually have different functional effects. So here's what they argue. The old ones are processed by, their effects on cognition are mediated <coughs> by mechanisms, psychological mechanisms, which have the function of processing information like that. Function, I take it, they're going to cash out in terms of uh, evolutionary function. This is what they were selected for in evolutionary history. So I'm making certain claims, you're processing them using uh, brain mechanisms which are designed for, you inherited them due to the selective history, which involves uh, processing arguments or understanding communications. Whereas the newfangled interventions Bits and Merkel claim bypass these interventions. Right? You don't have any adaptive mechanisms for you know, processing uh, methylphenidate or you know, some new compound or um, having your brain zapped. Not yet, anyway. Give evolution a while, it's going to take a quite a long while. So, why should, we why should we care about that? Well, for two reasons, Bublitz and Merkel claim all. Because it causes two differences. One is the resulting mental states are not controlled by us, or we don't control the effects on our mental states. And the second is it produces mental states which are not reflective of who we really are. So let me give you an example. Um, I want to make Roger more selfish. Uh, Roger is a very unselfish person, so uh, that's, that's going to take a lot of work. Here are two ways I could, do, I could do it. One is, while he's asleep, I could rewire his brain to make him give more weight to egoistic desires. 
I'm not going to do it, you know, I'm just going to change that much. No question about uh, his personal identity, but he's going to wake up more selfish. Here's another way I could do it. This one doesn't sound like it's very likely to work, but I could try. I could give him the complete works of Ayn Rand. And maybe on reading them, the scales will fall from his eyes and he will embrace the virtue of selfishness. So Booklets and Merkel claim in the first case, Roger doesn't control the fact that he's selfish. He just wakes up more selfish. Um, in the second one, he does exercise a degree of control over um, the fact that he becomes selfish. Some people might be tempted to deny that. I'm not, because I've got an account of control, according to which control just consists in kind of sensitivity to reasons of a certain kind, of the ability to recognize and react to reasons, and that could be instantiated in Rogers becoming selfish through reading the works of Ayn Rand. The second thing is it produces states, Bulbitz and Merkel claim, which are not reflective of who the person is. So that seems true in Rogers' case. Uh, he wakes up selfish. We think, gee, that's not Roger. Whereas if he were to be convinced by the works of Ayn Rand, we would think, well, we think we'd learned something about him. Jeez, kind of thing he was. Who would have thought? Old Roger. After. We would be gobsmacked because we would think that the fact that it found fertile ground in his mind tells us something about what he was like all along. All right. I think, although. Uh, that sounds persuasive. I think the worry stems from a one-sided diet of examples. I think, in fact, on the one hand, cognitive enhancers, uh, the new-fashioned ones, can produce, regularly do produce, states which are should be seen as expressions of the control of the agent and are reflective of the agent. And on the other hand, the old-fangled ways of intervening in minds uh, by, can bypass capacities for control and produce states that are not reflective of the agent, even if, uh, which I think is true, even if they are psychologically mediated in their effects on the agent. So let me <coughs> first give you some examples of how cognitive enhances may enhance control and reflectiveness. Um, just think of SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or TCDS. In each case, what they do is not to cut the agent off from their reality in the kind of way that Carl Elliott seemed worried about, as hallucinogenics might, as alcohol does in sufficient quantities, as uh, my example of rewiring Roger's brain might all do, but rather they make the agent more capable of recognizing the reasons which actually pertain. Uh, and indeed, the uh, anecdotes 
case reports, to put it slightly more uh, uh, scientifically, that we have about Prozac and the SSRIs, in, indeed that's exactly what people report. Uh, in many cases, they feel far more capable of dealing with uh, changes in, in their environment in ways which are rational, of recognizing that somebody's uh, inability to have lunch with them isn't necessarily a rejection of them. Um, that you know, somebody looking away isn't necessarily an expression of their dislike of them, and so forth. They are capa better capable of responding to the reasons they have. If you have a reasons-based account of control, you should see these things as enhancing control. Now, of course, we don't uh, exercise control over the fact that they change our dispositions in certain ways. I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense to talk about control over control, but certainly that much is true about traditional ways of uh, uh, changing mood too. Think about you know, playing music, uh, painting the, the walls pink, these things too. Psychologically mediated, old-fashioned ways of changing people's dispositions, which may or may not make them more... Uh, uh, responsive to reasons. In the case of painting the walls pink, there are reasons to think that under some circumstances they actually do make people more receptive to reasons. There are lower um, rates of impulsive violence in uh, institutions. Now that's uh, lowering the rate of violence which the person themselves thinks is justifiable on reflection which is to say that it's actually increasing reflectiveness. So there doesn't seem to be any in-principle worry that these newfangled means of intervening in the mind are going to decrease control or decrease reflectiveness. On the other hand, it's quite easy to think of old-fashioned ways of intervening in the mind which do decrease control and do decrease reflectiveness. Um, so roughly the mind is, uh, is a set of a suite of modules for processing information. <coughs> you get a gentle control when a sufficient number of those uh, modules are capable of processing the relevant information. When that happens you do get control, and the resulting state is, uh, tends to be reflective of who the agent is. But we bypass that kind of agential control by, um, in circumstances in which information is available only to some of the modules constituted of the mind. That happens basically all the time. Uh, when you process information, either when you're not conscious of the information, it's presented subliminally or very briefly, or you just fail to encode it in working memory, even though you might have a, a very brief conscious uh, experience of it, or when you're conscious of the stimulus but you're not conscious of what it does, under these circumstances, 
There's masses and masses of evidence that it's processed psychologically without you exercising agential control. I'm insisting on agential control because you could see the way the module processes the information as itself instantiating a kind of control. It's a kind of responsiveness to reasons. But it doesn't amount to agential control because these modules are, in the jargon, informationally encapsulated. They're cut off from all the other processing uh, units and, and therefore from a large part of what the agent believes or desires uh, and values and so forth. Um, and we see that um, produced quite regularly in the lab and we have every reason to believe that it happens in the real world all the time. This produces behavior that's not controlled by uh, the agent. Hence the fact that we can manipulate people uh, in the lab in various ways into, for example, um, you can reliably get people to choose A or B um, by introducing or failing to introduce option C. So C is an irrelevant alternative. You never choose it. Nobody chooses it because it's obviously inferior to A and B. Perhaps it's got all the features of uh, A, which on the other hand has more features than B, but it's more expensive than A. So C has got everything uh, that A has that's good, um, but it's at a higher cost, obviously you're going to choose uh, A. If it's the, the choice is between A and B, you might trade mm -hmm. off features of more expensive A for the lower cost of B, lower cost but fewer features. Introducing C makes people switch from B to A. So introducing an irrelevant alternative changes people's options. Sorry, people's choice patterns. And that's just one example of many. Um, might think, for example, of how holding a warm drink makes people feel more affiliative to people, to others, compared to holding a cold drink. Again, these this, the stimuli is processed by mechanisms partially constitutive of them, but you don't get agential control because you don't get awareness of how it's working on them. Wilblitz and Merkel might think that nevertheless, the direct indirect, as they call it, the, what I'm calling the newfangled, oldfangled distinctions, a good heuristic for permissible, sorry, impermissible, permissible. I don't think it's even a good heuristic. In fact, I think in the world today, actual manipulation of people is massively better uh, explained by or due to this kind of inadvertent or deliberate manipulation of people's behavior by external facts which are psychologically mediated. In fact, there's a whole field uh, of cognitive archaeology which is devoted to how, for example, monumental architecture or rituals change people's dispositions and uh, large-scale societies uh, were very plausibly, um, again, possibly not uh, 
deliberately, but nevertheless doing it because it was reinforced, we're changing the behavior of people, making them in some ways more pro-social, in other ways um, more martial, more willing to die for and to kill for the society. How were they doing it? They were altering external facts, altering rituals, altering buildings. Um, and then we're seeing the same kind of uh, science uh, as it's now becoming applied deliberately to manipulate behavior by marketers who now aren't interested in uh, expanding territory, or they are, but it's a different kind of territory. They're interested in brand territory, or they're market share. And there's a lot of work on price anchoring, pricing in multiple lots, positioning of goods, all of which are known to alter buying behavior in ways that bypass the capacity for agential control. So what we're actually seeing is massively more behavior manipulation, bypassing of control, arguably bringing about states that are not effective as the agent, produced by old-fashioned means, uh, which you know, gives us a good reason to be looking there and not to the newfangled, which doesn't differ in what it does in any relevant way, except that it's less powerful and less pre prevalent. Okay, a very final remark on uh, what the parity principle buys us for the scope of neuroethics. So, if I'm right in thinking that these ways of altering, manipulating, affecting behavior by changing environments are in fact the powerful ones, the pervasive ones, the ones that explain <coughs> Uh, broad-scale differences in behavior, and the parity principle is true, then as neuroethicists, we should be concerned with those things in the first place. I mean, the stuff about cognitive enhancers is cool and fascinating, and I certainly don't want to abandon it. Uh, but I think that looking at behavior and manipulation by, for example, monumental architecture is also cool and fascinating, and also more important. If we're concerned about inequality, and I think we should be, then maybe we should be leveraging the intuitions that arise when we think about how cognitive enhancements, the new-fashioned kind, <coughs> might cause cognitive enhancement—sorry, uh, inequality. Why we should we should leverage those intuitions into re-examining the old-fashioned interventions. So rather than thinking, as some people. Many people argue that there is a relevant similarity between things we already do and the new ones, and therefore we should accept the old ones. I want to use the, uh, the new ones to give us impetus to look back at the acceptability of things we've been doing for a long time. Thank you.